you now have a really, really spread out workforce and a really, really spread out set of resources to both allow them access to and secure their access to. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Hello and welcome to InterVision Status Go. I'm your host, Chris Campbell. Today we're speaking with Nick Piagentini from Palo Alto Networks. Nick is an engineering lead that focuses on SaaS and cloud security. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you so much. Happy to be here, Chris. Excellent. Uh, So before we really dive into today's topic, which is focused on cloud security for remote users, uh, let's get into your background a bit. I've always known you from your time at Palo and working on the Aperture and the uh, SaaS security model. So you've been in this space for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, I have. I I started in education. So probably 20 years ago, I was doing a lot of Microsoft, Novell, Cisco, and uh, security training. And then the first real vendor I worked for was a company called NetScreen Technologies. Um, Made a really nice uh, IPsec firewall right back in the day. And and then uh, we were acquired by Juniper. And I worked at Juniper for a while in their security products group, which got renamed like 18 times. And uh, then I left that for Palo Alto probably 13 years ago. There was only 46 people in the company when I started there, and I, I did education services for them. Wow. And you have definitely put your time in and definitely know the portfolio cold. I've certainly watched it grow. I think uh, our first class that taught everything there was to know about uh, Palo Alto was two days. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems like another uh, revolution for Palo Alto is coming from inventing a category that Gartner had to come up with called Next Generation Firewall. It seems to be uh, happening all over again here in 2020 with enterprise services, network security, and uh, cloud security all becoming part of the portfolio. And considering today's new normal and what we're working with lately as far as what happens out there in the world after COVID-19. Um, remote working obviously becoming a large potential increase for business as we know it. It is now uh, the most common topic of conversation in my day-to-day. Absolutely. We've gone from data center that had all the all the jewels of the kingdom in one place to so many SaaS applications, AWS being used for development, to the point where there was no longer a clear physical location uh, that represented where people had access resources. Um, you add that to your users now working from WeWork spaces or on the road or from home. You now have a really, really spread out workforce and a really, really spread out set of resources to both allow them access to and secure their access to. You know, it's funny. When you think about a VPN, that's exactly what we think of is giving people secure access to resources. But originally it really wasn't for security, it was just extending the network to people outside the building, and that was it. It wasn't like that created that much of a perimeter. It was literally, oh, my LAN now extends to this node across a tunnel that hides that traffic from the internet. But today, you know, VPN has become more of a how do I apply a security policy to somebody that is not inside of a network that has a next generation firewall at the perimeter? So when I look at Prisma Access and the way that 
you know, it evolved from Global Protect Cloud Services. It really is a security service that is distributed throughout the world that now gives you the ability to have people accessing things that, that aren't an extension of your network anymore. Because let's face it, probably two thirds of your business assets don't live on your network. Absolutely. Right. That, that we've seen this tremendous change. And uh, you make such a great point that the VPN used to really not be about security. It was just plumbing. Right. It's like, how, how do I get access to this machine that doesn't have a public IP, basically. Uh, but now what we've realized is, you know, not only do we need to provide that secure access, that secure access doesn't go to one location. And even more than access is we need to ensure kind of in the modern threat landscape that that employees are always covered by a full security stack, right? I mean, when I started in security, and I know the same was for you, like the, the image of the attack, the hacker, and the whole process was, you know, finding an exposed bastion host in a DMZ and then, you know, port scanning it to find what services were running and if any of them were vulnerable and then exploiting that service to gain access. And and now we just, the attackers just target the user, right? It's spear phishing, it's, you know, malware targeting the endpoint. The, the weak point in the security chain becomes the employee and their laptop. And if you let them just run VPNs when they need to access a resource and then turn it off when it's not useful to them, it, you're letting them opt out of security probably when it's the most critical time for them to opt in. Yeah, absolutely. That's some of the problems even with native like split tunneling. You're sending all traffic not destined to your network to the internet without any policy on it. But if that's exposing data to the internet from that laptop or that moved from the network to the laptop and then out, you have no visibility. And it creates a giant hole that I think what we're seeing here is a move towards all traffic being policied and inspected regardless of its destination. And, and from a security perspective, we we have to do that. We have definitely seen, um, you know, our Unit 42 and our researchers, an uptick in attacks that are, you know, phishing-based attacks against users because the attackers out there see that, you know, all of a sudden, so many of their potential targets are now outside of the enterprise security perimeter, right? They're working from home, and they're not using the full tunnel, always on kind of concept for security. And so now they become more vulnerable, right? They're easier to attack. And, you know, I can't fault all these organizations for maybe not adopting full tunnel always on, because if you're using the traditional VPN comes into the central location, right? And, and then egresses to the internet for security. That's a really terrible design for full tunnel always on it. Users don't like it. Performance is bad. You hit your you know, network connection twice. There's all these reasons not to do that with that kind of traditional design. Yeah, not to mention all those users outside the building hairpinning through that appliance means maybe you need a bigger appliance or maybe your ISP now needs to be upsized. Even though the people aren't in the building at all, it, it really does seem backwards, even though it's commonplace how we've done things for 20 years. Absolutely, so, right? Now we're cloud-based, right? and that is how Prisma Access works, right? Exactly. Now we're cloud-based, and now we can drive all of that through a kind of enforcement point that's nearby where the user is. So backhaul becomes non-existent. The only things that have to return kind of to the place of origin would be the traffic that actually has to go there for resources that are located there. Everything else can hit this you know, security stack in the cloud and then just egress to the internet from there. Um, so it's that idea that if our users are spread out and our resources are spread out, our security stack has to be spread out as well, right? You you have to adopt right. your controls to the environment you're trying to secure. So you have a 
Palo Alto owned, leased, whatever you would say, you know, uh, rented space that is a secure mesh, if you will, of these nodes that are then globally distributed throughout a hyperscale cloud or colos or something to that extent to house all of these virtual instances? Exactly. Exactly. You know, we leverage uh, AWS and Google Compute currently. So we're multi-cloud, which is kind of critical in this day and age because we find that some of these hyper-cloud providers, right, have better presence in different locations. So, you Mm -hmm. know, like Middle East, I think, is your really covers better than, say, uh, Google, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly. Um, and so by leveraging that, we can spin up resources incredibly quickly. Um, and then they just, you know, using nothing, you know, nothing groundbreaking. They they have, you know, BGP-based IPsec tunnels between these various nodes to, to drop a secure infrastructure over this public internet. But the, the kind of beauty of it as a service is that the user doesn't have to manage all those tunnels and all that routing. It it appears, right, to to the customer as a Nice, classy segment, an Ethernet segment in the sky, right, that, that connects all these points. Um, and one of the great things is as we've watched companies have to shift to supporting a massive mobile workforce that they had never intended to support two months ago. Um, and they'll ask, like, how fast can I turn on, right, you know, VPN connectivity for a thousand users? You know, once the planning is done, the actual pulling the trigger and letting it happen can be done in like 40 minutes which is ridiculous, right? (laughs) And Palo Alto takes on that scaling for demand, right? I mean, they buy a service from Palo Alto based upon users and wherever those users happen to spin up, then you just scale that particular region or those particular nodes? Right, the pricing is based on the number of users or the bandwidth you want to send. And then uh, we're on the hook for maintaining performance for that number of users in that location. And we actually have an SLA around the kind of the latency introduced by the security stack. So we have to scale to support the users. Otherwise, right, we end up owing service credits. Um, And I like that because it creates some interesting scenarios that customers can leverage. Um, And one of them that I think is interesting uh, to talk about is, you know, TLS decrypt. And we're seeing like when I started with Palo Alto, about maybe 30% of the traffic we saw was SSL. And now right. certainly 80. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the same thing. Um, how do you decrypt all that with your on-prem device? And, and how did you plan for that decryption load three years ago when you bought it, right? Um, yeah, it's tough. That's yeah. one of our approaches right now. It's like you bought a next generation firewall and that's great. And we've deployed it to best practices, but you're still not doing decryption. Why? Oh, well, managing the certificates and, you know, the load on the devices, even though we right-sized it because when we bought them, it was 50% of traffic and then it was 70. Now it's 80. And it's like, you know, people find themselves afraid to start doing decryption on the firewall yet. If 80% of the traffic is encrypted, how effective is your purchase? Right. How can you leverage so many of those kind of next generation capabilities when the application is just SSL, right? You have very little. Exactly. It kind, of, it kind of obscures the point of why you bought it and why you pay for all these threat feeds and services to not implement it properly. And I am attending a training session tomorrow with the Pacific Northwest team on best practices around SSL decrypt. It is the hot topic right now. Yeah. So Prisma totally makes sense that you don't have to scale a firewall and say, oh, I need this particular model with, you know, this much overhead over what we're doing today to accommodate for it. If it just scales on demand, you turn on that feature and it increases what you need, but that happens with auto scaling behind the scenes. 
Right, at the same price point, right? You pay for a user or you pay for, you know, 10 megs going to it. That could be plain text or all TLS 1.2, right? It doesn't matter. And so it makes it a really attractive place to start doing that, right? Because the commercial limitation is, and then the, the technical limitation has been removed. And, and, you know, I remember when we saw, you know, malware starting to be delivered from SSL encrypted websites and, and the attackers used to be too lazy to get certificates. It would just be normally delivered over plain text. <laughs> But now even they're doing it, right? So it's across the board, and it's such a critical. Are you sure you want to proceed to this website? Yeah, 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 <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about the user to all the distributed nodes. What happens on the north side of these firewall nodes that are out there in the world? So intelligent routing of traffic. I'm assuming based upon where the resource is or what they're trying to access is the the theory. Yes, absolutely. And and what we found as we deployed it, and you know how this is, sometimes you'll encounter uh, some design somewhere that you hadn't expected and you have to adjust to it. And so what we realized is it, there's some kind of broad categories that you know customers will fall into. There's ones that have already invested in a lot of interconnectivity, maybe lease mm-hmm. lines, MPLS between their sites, and they want to you know, continue to leverage that investment. And there's others that are more than happy to let us kind of uh, using Google Fiber be the be the backbone, and so we actually had to implement it was a it was a new routing term I got to learn, and it's, it comes from the cloud. It's a hot potato routing. <laughs> in hot potato routing, you you don't egress the traffic from the best path in the cloud. You get it out of the cloud as soon as you can. So basically, you drop it into the customer's network at the first opportunity, and you let the customer traverse it to whatever its final location is going to be, as opposed to staying in your kind of BGP environment to the, you know, best connection sure. there. And uh, like a greedy service provider trick. Yeah, totally. Right. <laughs> um, but we find that some customers have invested enough that they basically want the, the access infrastructure to drop that traffic back to them in whatever location is closest to where it came in. And then they want to, you know, get it to, you know, their Hong Kong office or their, London office of through their own WAN infrastructure. And that was a new thing. I'd never encountered that particular term before. So I thought that was a, interesting to learn something new in that space. And everything else, SaaS-based stuff like Salesforce, Dropbox, et cetera, just routes directly to them. If you have a AWS VPCs where a lot of your data center services are hosted, it'll just terminate off a direct connect that Palo Alto, I'm assuming, has, or because the infrastructure is already in it, maybe it already is in that Amazon backbone? Yeah, we have two real kind of approaches for the AWS. Either we just egress to them uh, from kind of a known set of IPs, um, or Mm -hmm. we've started seeing a lot of people building an IPsec tunnel directly from uh, access into their like transit gateways. Um, So basically they've created, they've taken their, their AWS environment and they've uh, taken the internal space there and made it available for their users uh, to access. And since, you know, we really push for the always on full tunnel kind of design, uh, that allows, you know, what, what used to be the process is a developer would fire up their open VPN and connect in AWS and then do work and then turn it off and they're done. So now they right. just access it without having to like have this transitional, you know, moment where they say, I am now accessing, you know, my, my development environment. Um, but we've actually got pushback on that. There's a number of customers that feel that they want the developer to have to actively opt in to access with their development environment. And for that, we just use our authentication policy. So perhaps we trigger a step up authentication when the developer right. wants to access the dev environment at AWS. Right. So 
all of the end user who has an agent basically on their phone, tablet, laptop, workstation, whatever it might be, is ultimately proxied to the local instantiation of that that policy enforcement or that virtual firewall node. Mm -hmm. uh, any complaints there about being in a full proxy model or is it, you know, internet traffic just goes to the internet anyway, even if the tunnels still being instantiated or. Yeah. The, the most uh, pushback we get is around video and voice traffic. There is a palpable, permanent level of fear around tunneling your video and voice. Um, and obviously we know where this comes from because if you were backhauling that any distance, it super degraded the quality. Um, and so there is still that idea that why should I send video or voice traffic down a tunnel? There's really not much security value in it and all it can do is degrade the flow. And uh, so I can understand that. You know, we, we have some kind of interesting features within our VPN for a kind of just-in-time split tunneling where mm -hmm. the session is built, uh, you know, through the tunnel. Um, and then when the firewall through App ID identifies the traffic, we can tell the client to you know, basically stop that session, reestablish it, but outside of the tunnel. So instead of whitelisting an IP or URL, we whitelist it by layer seven identification. And then it becomes like a just-in-time pinhole uh, split tunnel for those applications. So we still get the log, but we don't have the traffic continue through the firewall. It's huh, clever. Yeah, we had to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the beauty of your native architecture being built, built around identifying applications from packets. Yeah, it makes it really uh, easy to do a more kind of intelligent uh, decision around that rather than just to a URL or, or you know, IP addresses. Though, though I have to say I've encountered so much security now that's based around whitelisting IPs that I had not realized just how many core functions yeah. and inter-vendor communication is really gated purely by uh, static IP whitelists. Yeah, it almost seems like the dark ages nowadays, but it's so hard to get away from that, you know, blacklist these countries we don't do business with that have malicious actors and whitelist these IPs that we consider trust, you know, even though they could be spoofed, bought and sold. Um, it, it does. It's hard to break old habits, I guess, especially with network guys. <laughs> Certainly. And when the infrastructure is already in place to do that, it's, it's hard to get around it. Uh, there are so many scenarios where I see a customer works with another vendor right, that provides a SaaS service to them. And the way that SaaS service connection is secured is the customer gives the, the service provider the IP addresses they're going to come from. Yeah. And then we'll try to introduce something more dynamic where there could be quite a few IP addresses they're coming from because they might you know, put 106 points of presence globally for these users to egress from. And the immediate feedback is that, oh, the, the vendor doesn't want that many IPs. Like I don't have an easy way to update that list. And I'm struck by how limiting that is as a solution, right? So <laughs> you're trying to move to a more dynamic environment and then your vendor who you pay you know, for the service is telling you that they can't support this new security design of yours. And that seems you know, unfortunate to me. Well, I'm sure they'll uh, start to see the writing on the wall here in the next few months to few years and, and hopefully get in line with how things are coming, get a little more dynamic, whether that's, you know, by URL or suffix or something like that to start to do uh, trusted end-to-end. -end. Right. Like, I'm curious how that could get implemented. Maybe it'll have something to do with like certificates. We could maybe get one yeah. entity into there. 
people love PKI. They can't wait to roll it out. So that- <laughs> right, right. Like it's a bad word, right? Everyone, everyone, <laughs> you get that cringe, right? <laughs> How dare you? It is. Well, I would be have to decrypt traffic too if we knew how to use PKI. <laughs> we definitely encounter too much of that, right? Yeah. So all of this kind of makes me think, you know, towards the future. And the funny thing is, as I look at 5G cellular technology and the speeds and the throughput, and the latency to statistics around what that is capable of, I start to start to wonder if my my age-old statement of, oh, everything's going to the cloud, but don't worry, network engineers, there'll always be the campus was, was right. Um, with software distributed firewall policies that are tunneling off of an agent on a local node to 5G, where you've got cellular signals that are faster, stronger than maybe you had in the office. Do we see a network appliance firewall and ISPs delivering circuits to college campuses and to enterprise buildings in the future? That is a, that is a great, great question, right? If, if every laptop has fast Wi-Fi through, you know, AT&T or, you know, T-Mobile, then, you know, why would they ever connect to a wireless network, right? Suddenly the network is everywhere. And you're right. We used to at least be able to say, hey, I know they're going to have to connect in to Wi-Fi at some point and then I can like control them there. And that, that may not, that may no longer be the case. It, assuming they implement it well and, and it gets out there, I, I think you're right. It becomes this software as a service for security, I, I think becomes the only way to control these kind of broadly roaming resources, right? These laptops that are always connected at all times, but never through the corporate network. Um, yeah, maybe that stuff all goes away and everything becomes back to like an agent and a service, uh, which would be kind of a, a crazy evolution of, of what we've seen over time. <laughs> One agent to rule them all. Yeah, it's going to become a race for the desktop then, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly makes policies a little bit easier to write. I mean, you have a global policy, some regional policies, some divisional policies, and then everything else just comes down to the user's um, need for access by application. Yeah, it would so, really clean up. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it quite complex policies that have been around for so long they've developed just like a a layer of crust old you know old rules that can't be removed because no one knows what they you know might break uh this could be a kind of a fresh breath of hey let's rebuild policy in a cleaner more you know organic way that just solves our problems yeah Yeah, i think that the biggest offenders will be the existing palo alto users that already have everything in panorama and they can just then apply that to Prisma Access right in Panorama so that they can leave all of their uh, their trail of legacy rules and unknowns in place versus uh, maybe getting a clean, fresh start. It, that is funny that the, the ones uh, best poised to uh, easily transition to that model will be the ones that carry the most baggage with them. <laughs> exactly. That's a good one. I think it's going to be interesting. I think we're on the cusp of some uh, significant changes around how we see uh, security and networking just with with a lot of people aren't going to want to come back to the office. Uh, I know I certainly want to get back to the office occasionally, <laughs> but I, I think- Yeah, there's certain monotony in the house right now of you know my daily routine. I'm, I'm busy and I'm at my desk all day long, more so probably, but I certainly miss- you know, driving to appointments and that time in between to kind of mentally prepare and so forth. Whereas now it's all stuffed in. And uh, 
I, I want to get back out there. Do I therefore want to go to a, a conference where there's thousands of people congregating and we're meeting in rooms with hundreds? Yeah, as much fun as we've had at the Palo Alto SE Summit together, uh, I'm not sure as gatherings in that volume are still going to be that that digestible to the public. And uh, I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing because uh, yeah. the, the interpersonal stuff is wonderful, right? That connecting with your peers and colleagues, I think that is invaluable, you know, uh, but uh, we all get tired sitting in a lecture hall watching slides, right? It's <laughs> very hard to learn. Yeah, it definitely shifts the uh, the work focus a little bit more into the hands of the people to be able to balance their lives and schedules. Uh, we just need to hope that people can, you know, react and adapt to that that methodology versus having to know that you have to be in this conference room and then on, you know in this place at that time and so forth and kind of take it into your own hands to become more productive. And with technologies allowing people to work from anywhere at any time securely, I think that um, at least technology is going that way and it's up to humankind to rise to the occasion. Absolutely. About all I can say for sure is that we can keep them secure. I don't know if we can keep everybody sane at home, but certainly secure. <laughs> that might be Palo Alto's new tagline going forward. <laughs> this was why they don't let me do marketing. <laughs> So Nick, if you had to give advice to an IT leader uh, working to you know, take advantage of some of the opportunities with these challenges, would you tell them to start, you know, start focusing on something in particular? What would be more important now, adjusting to the new abnormal and, uh, and utilizing technology to securely empower your workforce? That's a great question. And I think if I could distill down, and I've been having these conversations intensely for the last month or so, um, uh, just so many times in a day. And if I could break it down to just like one helpful piece of advice for all of the IT and security teams out there is recognize that whatever emergency thing you put into place here, you will inevitably end up living with for years. So it's not like it's going to be put in and suddenly it's gone later. These decisions you make now, while you need to make them quickly and you need to adapt quickly, you want to make sure it's something that you can grow with and that will address your other issues going forward. Because no matter how much you might think it's just a one-off, you just got to get it done. We all know what happens when something enters production, enters you know your environment, it's going to stay there for a while. So take the time to look at everything that product brings you. And you don't want something that just solves this one problem right now because you will inevitably bump into those walls in four months, six months, whatever down the line, when you now have to live with this product and have it do all these other things that weren't, you know, front of mind while you were trying to do the Herculean effort of getting all of your users working remotely. That is a uh, fantastic word of advice right there. Well, Nick, thanks so much for being on today. It's always great to catch up. It's almost better when we're talking about emerging technology. And uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. Yeah, Chris, thank you so much for inviting me on and uh, spending the time with me. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's great. Well, to our listeners, if you want to know more, go to intervision.com. Uh, the show notes will be provided with links and contact information. And thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.